In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, it is good to see you all here this evening, and it's that time of the summer where things are beginning to wrap up for everyone. We know our school-age children have gone back to school, and now we're starting to see uh, faces of students who have been away for the summer come back, and uh, you can perhaps look at the professors in the room, and they might look a little more anxious than they have in the past, I don't know, three-plus months now, but uh, pretty soon we're all going to be back, those of us that are in academia, and, and so we begin to make that turn towards uh, the late summer and into the fall, of course, and so uh, tonight we continue, but also wrap up um, the study we've been doing for quite a while now uh, in John chapter 6. This is the, the text that we had been given this summer, and I really appreciate Betsy last week um, saying uh, more about 6 in very helpful ways, and so tonight as we wrap up this, uh, this section of, of the Gospel of John, uh, it's given us this opportunity to reflect for a number of weeks now about this hard saying of Jesus, which tonight the disciples, you know, some of the disciples said, this is a hard say saying, right? And it is a hard saying. And so I'm going to do my part not to make it harder, not saying I'm going to make it easier, but I'm hopefully not going to make it harder. And I want to just start with a very simple quotation. Uh, Henry de Lubac is a, was uh, a Roman Catholic theologian, very influential in the 20th century re uh, renewal of theology around Vatican II. And and uh, I think he actually has a book, this title, but the, the quote is, the Eucharist makes the church. And so I reflected on that quote this week, that the Eucharist makes the church. And you'll remember John 6, of course, is, is John's Eucharistic chapter. It's his teaching on the Eucharist. It's many things, including the first of the I am statements and those things. But, but this is where he's getting out his Eucharistic theology. And if you pay attention uh, here at Epiphany and you live into the liturgical year with us at Epiphany, you'll notice the, the one night a year where I really do intensive and intentional teaching about the Eucharist is Monday, Thursday. And of course, you all know that because you listen and you're here and you, and you know that. And so, but, but this walk through John 6 has given us a great opportunity to reflect on this. And, and so the Eucharist makes the church and Jesus really is saying that tonight, not so much in the sense of just the Eucharist as this thing that we gather around on a Sunday, though it is that, but the bread and the wine, the body and the blood of Jesus that we partake of makes the church. And so there at the beginning of tonight's passage, verses 56 through 59, Jesus introduces one of his favorite themes. Now remember, this is, this is a group of people who've been following him for, for you know, um, I was going to say a while, but it's not really a while. It just feels that way to us five or six weeks into this, the series. But, but, I mean, this is a group of people that are following Jesus because they've heard about what he does. They've seen his miracle of feeding them, uh, feeding the 5,000 plus people. So they're kind of just following him. And, and uh, they kept saying, like, give us manna, give us manna. And Jesus said, I'm going to give you something better than that. And they said, what sign will you give us? And he said, me, I'll give you, I'm the sign, right? And so um, I'll give you my body and my blood. And they're scandalized because, like, isn't this Jesus born of Joseph and Mary? Or at least that was his parents, even though we may have heard crazy stories about his birth. And so, you know, now we come uh, to, the, to the end of this teaching uh, section. And we see from tonight's gospel that Jesus draws the proverbial line in the sand, in the dirt, right? There are people who are going to follow him after this teaching, and there are people that are not going to follow him. But before he gets there, Jesus introduces, uh, in verse 56, one of his uh, most important themes of the Johannine literature, of John's thinking, and that is the concept of abiding. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides 
in me and I in him. And if you go through the Gospel of John, if you go through the letters of John, this language of abiding is very prevalent in John. He, he likes this, this concept. And, and here, this abiding, and I mean, not just here, but elsewhere in the, in the corpus of John, it designates this indwelling of the Father and the Son. Right? So if we thought Jesus' teaching here had perhaps been different, unique, strange, hard to understand even, he's going to ratchet it up a bit. And he's going to say, well, let me now start talking about the relationship of the Trinity, right? Because that's going to be so much easier to understand than me talking about being the body and blood of Christ, right? But it almost seems like Jesus is saying, like, I don't really want all of you following me around forever. We've got to decide, are you going to follow me or are you not going to follow me, right? Are you going to believe in me? Are you going to get out of the way of the work the Father is doing in your life so that you can follow me or not? So he introduces the language of abiding, and he says that Um, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Right? I mean, Jesus is basically saying that when we consume the body and blood of Jesus, when we consume his body, his blood in the Eucharist, Christ dwells within us, and thereby we share in this divine life. The life that the Father and the Son have together, we are invited into that relationship. But we're invited into it by way of partaking of the body and blood of Christ. That is why we call it Holy Communion. Right? Yes, we're communing with one another, literally, right? We're kneeling beside one another, right? We're communing with one another. If you kneel beside certain people in our church, you're also going to, they're going to touch you when you commune, right? They're going to let you know that they're beside you, right, in this kind of holy communion. So, but it's not just that. It's not just communion with one another in this space. We commune with the entire church of Jesus Christ, and importantly, as God is, as, as Jesus is teaching here, we are communing with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That the way in which the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are in relationship with one another, we get to participate in that as well. We abide. We, we come to rest in that indwelling of the Father and the Son. Now, now this is a mystery. I'm not going to be able to explain this. And, you know, two PhDs later is not going to do me any good to really get at the heart of this. And, you know, to be honest, I could even bring Fred Sanders in here, my colleague who writes books on the Trinity, and Fred would do a better job, but we would still leave tonight saying, like, yeah, we cannot completely understand this teaching. But if you remember from your reading of the Gospel of John at other times, in John 17, Jesus prays that we would have the kind of union with one another that he has with the Father. So Jesus is already all about that the union that I want my people to have is the same kind of unity that the Father and the Son share. And inasmuch as that's a mystery, then it remains a bit of a mystery how we get to participate in that union of the Father and the Son. Though Jesus' prayer in John 17 says, and here in John 6, that we can, we do abide in that relationship. But not because we think happy thoughts. Not because I, we think we understand some element of it. No, we do it by way of the elements of bread and wine, by way of partaking in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Right? I mean, there's so much happening when, when we kneel or stand to receive that if, if we really stop to think, 
right? If I stopped in front of you with the bread and said, now, before I give this to you, I want you to think about what's happening here, right? Many of us might say, yeah, I'm good. So much so that that's what the medieval church did, right? I mean, so much so that they said, yeah, I'm not touching that. I'm not coming near that. There's way too much happening there. But at the same time, Jesus invites us into this, right? Whoever feeds on my flesh, there's an assumption there that people are going to do it. And so we should not fear. Instead, we come in faith. We come as people of grace. We come as people responding to the work of God in us, right? Remember the earlier section of John that Jesus teaches, like the Father's, he repeats it here, the Father's doing this work. Your job is to kind of get out of the way. So this passage, tonight's sermon, is not to scare us away from the Eucharist. It's to, to add the weightiness, if, if we had forgotten that, as we approach the table, the altar. As we receive the body and the blood, and we think about the fact that, that there, from that act, I am being drawn up again, being reminded of the fact that I abide in the relationship of the Father and the Son. Wow. And you've heard me say this before. If I could, I would partake of the communion daily. I would be a daily communicant. I don't want to be a daily celebrant. I don't, I don't show up in the chapel here once a day with one other person, because you need at least one other person, make the Eucharist so that I can receive it. But I would be a daily communicant if I could, because I would love to be reminded every day that I abide in a relationship with the Father, the Son, and of course, we know the Holy Spirit. Right? So this Holy Communion that Jesus is inviting us into is, is tangible and real. It's not a theological construct. It is, it is where we abide with the Father and the Son. It's where we, we enter into this Trinitarian relationship with them. Right? So Jesus says, look, this isn't your normal bread. This isn't the manna that Moses gave you. This is a bread that brings you up into the life of the Trinity. This isn't a bread that's just going to sustain you. This is a bread that sustains you forever. It gives you eternal life, right? We eat to stay alive. We partake of this in order to live eternally. But then, like, Jesus now has gotten to the, the climax of his teaching, right? He's, he's drawn the line in the sand, and, and his disciples respond by saying, wow, this is, this is a really hard teaching. And, and the word hard there could actually be translated unacceptable, some of these followers are saying, this is unacceptable. You can't say this. Who, who are you to be teaching this? Who are you to think that's who you are? So this is a hard saying, which then leads a bunch of them to do what? To grumble and to murmur. But they had already done that once before, right? Back in verse 41, we were told the Jews grumbled about him. And then verse 52 even, if the Jews then disputed or fought among themselves. And so here they are grumbling again. And of course, that language of grumbling takes us right back to the wilderness. It takes us right back to just on the other side of the Red Sea where they've been delivered. God has shown himself to be um, their savior, their deliverer. And what do they do? Right? Remember that good food we had? I mean, it was hard work, but it wasn't that hard when you think about it. You know, making bricks all day is, there's, there's worse work you could do. And at least we had cucumbers and leeks. And I always use that as an example because that's at least the King James language of what they complain about. Remember little cucumbers and leeks? 
kale would be the way to translate it these days, I guess. So, you know, kale really hits the spot. So, you know, um, so they're, they're, they're murmuring. This is hard. This is unacceptable. This is crazy. They're just being, you know, again, like their, their forefathers, right? And so then Jesus tells them that if they don't believe that he descended to them and offers himself to them by way of his flesh and his blood, then how, he says, are they ever going to understand my death and resurrection and ultimate ascension? See, Jesus has it figured out this is all connected. I don't want to say Jesus is testing them, but Jesus knows that what's coming is going to test them. And so here he's saying, like, look, if you can't understand or, or by faith decide that what I'm saying is true, that I offer you my body and blood so that you can be in relationship with me and the Father, then how are they ever going to understand my resurrection and ascension? Jesus is getting them ready for what's to come, right? He's preparing them. He's not trying to scare them off. He's, he's trying to shepherd them. He's trying to father them to a place of understanding, right? It's like saying again, like in parenting, you, for those of us who are doing it or have done it, you say to your kids, do this. Why? Don't worry. One day you'll understand, right? So I was pretty proud of myself this week, and there's pictures to document this if you haven't seen them on Instagram already, but Thursday night, we decide we're going to take out this kind of, I don't know if a bush or shrub is the right word. It was, it, it was bigger than that. And we, I, I knew the roots were going crazy, and I didn't know what they, where they were going to pop up and start causing problems. And the tree, when we first moved in, the shrub, we used to trim right on, on top of our fence line. It was even with our fence line, right, which is maybe five feet. Now it was like three and a half feet above our fence, right? And it was great because no one could see into the property. It was great in that sense. But every day it dropped about 300 flowers and leaves on the ground. And you can imagine how much that bothers me, right? So um, it dropped leaves. The roots were going, I didn't know where. So we decide Thursday night, let's rip it out. Right then and there. So I've gotten a new sawzall, so I go out and I cut that thing down. Now what it left whew, was a stump and a gnarly one. And I had taken a much smaller tree out a few years ago right, that had, that had a stump, and I knew how hard I had worked to get that stump out, right? So last night, by the way, at the end of the story is I got it out, but, but we're, we're, we're taking, you know, we have to cut all the roots and, and away from the stump, so we'd cut a root, you know, about this thick, about an inch and a half, and then we'd pull on the end, and if we could, we would follow it and see where it went, right, because it was growing in lava rocks, not my yard, so I wasn't ripping up grass, and we'd pull it, and we, and we got like, I don't know, eight, nine, ten, twelve feet long roots from this tree so we needed to to chop them up to dispose of them so I, I got a old two by six out and my hatchet and I said to Brendan all right here's what you need to do right you take a chunk about this big and you go wham chop it off slide it down wham chop it up now Brendan hasn't done this kind of work before we don't live on a farm right so so I look over a minute later and Brendan is he's 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 whacking but the hatchet's not going nearly high enough, and it's more, instead of at his side, it's kind of more like towards his face, right? So I, I thought this would be a good time to teach Brendan how to use a hatchet, right? So, so I go over and I said, hey, here's what you do. First of all, never swing that thing up towards your face, because my nephew learned the hard way a few years ago when he whacked himself right in the face, right? So I said, you always swing it, and I said, you go up and you come down, wham, one thing. 
right? And so my point is, I'm not, yes, I want to get rid of those, those roots right then and there, but, I'm, but I'm, I'm teaching Brendan, like, don't swing it this way. Why? Because, you know, when you, when you hit yourself, you're going to learn why, right? So that proactive teaching. And so Jesus is kind of saying here, look, man, something is coming that is going to be incredible to believe. I mean, you think what I've just said is difficult. Wait until I die and then resurrect. So he's preparing them, right, for what's coming and, and how important that is. But yet, they don't, some of them just don't want to believe. And Jesus says, well, there's a solution to your belief in verse 63. Quit being fleshly and be more spiritual. I mean, he basically says, like, look, the flesh doesn't do you any good. It's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Right? So in other words, be more spiritual. <laughs> be more of the Spirit. Right? Don't think about, I don't know, I can't understand this intellectually. Don't be fleshly. Be spiritual. Right? Let, let, let the work that the Father is doing in you move you to understand. But they don't. So in verses 64 through 66, Jesus puts an end to the Jesus show. Right? These people are following him. Why? Because they like the Jesus show. Jesus puts an end to it, demanding that if they are going to come to him, they must get out of the way of the work of the Father. Right? So this is it. Jesus is like, I'm not, we're not going to have any more teaching sessions. You're not going to follow me around. I'm not going to feed you again. Right? This is the end. You need to decide that what I say is true and follow me, or you need to, to not. So verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now, scholars have noted that that language there, many of his disciples turned back, that's not just a word for all these people, right? Now, I'm sure lots of people walked away at that moment, but even some people that would have been considered his disciples walked away at that point. Right? This is a hard saying. And so they walked away. And so, in one of those moments where we can be proud of Peter, Right? Jesus turns to the twelve and says, Do you want to go away as well? And Peter answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And that phrase, the Holy One of God, that's the equivalent of the Gospel of Matthew's, You are the Christ. Right? This is, this is Peter's declaration of faith as given to us by John, that Peter is saying, We know that you're the Holy One of God. We know that you are the Messiah. We know that you have the words of eternal life. We know that you are the person that we need to follow. And so the rest of the story is they do follow him, not without some drama, not without some challenges, but yet we went from 5,000 down to 12. We went from 5,000 plus interested people in Jesus to 12 who got this hard. They didn't get it in the sense of intellectually, but they understood that in faith, they needed to respond to what Jesus was saying. And so let me just close by trying to bring us all the way back around to the very beginning of this uh, chapter of John. If you remember, John begins this chapter by using language that brings us back to the Exodus, right? Jesus goes up on a mountain to teach them, right? They recognize him as a kind of Moses-like figure. Feed us with manna. They even bring Moses into the equation, right? They want to make him king. They, well, we're oppressed. We could use a deliverer. So now here at the end, after this teaching, 
In this sense, we do see that Jesus is the new Moses, leading the people out of the Egypt of their sin and unbelief into the promised land of eternal life. Because that's what this passage is all about, that the Eucharist is our life. It is the Eucharist, it is partaking of the body and blood of Jesus Christ that brings us into this Trinitarian relationship, and thereby it's the Eucharist that makes the church. And so as we gather tonight as the church, like we do each week, and again, I can't, I'm, not, I'm not telling you to have a subjective relationship to receiving the bread and the wine tonight, but, but I would encourage you, you know, which is true every week, even if I don't say it, that as you come forward tonight and you think about what this is, as you think about this hard teaching of Jesus, not in the sense that that we want to say it's not true, but this hard way of understanding who Jesus is and how he offers himself to us. May we do it together with one another, realizing that we are in communion not only with one another, but with God the Father through the Son. And let us remember that this is God's gift to the church, that this is our deliverance. This is our manna that brings us eternal life. And mostly let us be mindful of the fact that what we need to continue to do is get out of the way and let God do the work that he wants to do within us. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.